Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of life Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. You can find this podcast at mormondiscussion.podbean.com as well as on iTunes. We also have our blog, themormondiscussion.blogspot.com. I usually start off the program by saying that we have a special episode for you today. Today, I really mean it. Today is my interview with Brad Wilcox. For those who do not know who Brother Wilcox is, he is a professor of education at Brigham Young University and the author of several books, as well as a popular speaker in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He served a mission for the church in Chile, along with being a professor at BYU. He's also a member of the general board of the Sunday School for the LDS Church. Prior to joining the BYU faculty, Wilcox was a sixth-grade teacher in Provo. From 2003 to 2006, Brother Wilcox was president of the Santiago Chile East Mission. He's also served at at times in several other positions in the LDS Church, ranging from Cub Scout leader to bishop. In 2007, he was called as a counselor in the presidency of the BYU Fourth State. Wilcox and his wife, Debbie, are the parents of four children. Debbie is a registered nurse who served a mission in Guatemala before she married Brad. He's written books such, such as The Continuous Atonement, Raising Ourselves to the Bar. He's also been a speaker at church educational system programs, such as Especially for Youth, and also BYU Education Week, and by BYU Women's Conference. He may be most well-known for his talk, which is quite popular in LDS circles on the Internet, which is called His Grace is Sufficient, where he explains grace in a way that each of us can grasp, a way that allows each of us to more fully understand the doctrine of Christ. Brother Wilcox, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Oh, good. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Greatly appreciate this. Maybe so my listeners have a little bit of background, and I'm sure you get tons of uh, letters and emails that you respond to, but but hopefully you remember me. I sent you a uh, an email uh, probably about nine months ago to a year ago where I was really struggling with the doctrine of Christ and with grace. And at that point, you sent me an email back sharing some of your thoughts and explanations. Um, so... Your email back to me responded with some answers on the doctrine of Christ and on grace that were really helpful. And so I just wanted to share with my listeners that on a personal scale, having corresponded with you, I just, I greatly appreciate your insight into the gospel and, and really love, uh, love uh, some of the things that you've done in, in, in the church. Thank you were born on Christmas, yeah. which I thought was kind of interesting. Is that, is that a blessing or a curse, Brad? <laughs> well, you know, I guess when you're a kid, you always think it's a curse, but now it's a blessing. Good grief, I get lots of attention because of it, especially from security at the airport. They're the awesome. only ones who ever look at your driver's license. And right, say, right. You're a Christmas baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things, uh, I always imagine people who have birthdays on Christmas that uh, rather than having two different days of multiple gifts, mom and dad just get a couple of gifts and name it for both occasions. Well, actually, my mom was really cute about that. She she always had two Christmas trees, one for Jesus and one for me. And uh, <laughs> then she'd make my brothers put a gift for me under each tree. 
And so it worked out great until my older brother decided that he beat the system and he bought me a pair of mittens and he put one under the Christmas tree and one under the birthday tree. And then from then on, it just went downhill. I read somewhere that you spent some time growing up in Ethiopia. What was your memories like of that? A memory, just I've seen pictures, but I don't have a memory of my life before Africa. So coming back to the United States when I was uh, about eight was was uh, when I first started having memories of being in Utah. In fact, it was kind of a transition to go from all black Africa to all white Provo uh, from one day to another. It was kind of a transition for me. Uh, my mom still remembers me coming home from school the first day. Now, I don't remember this, but she says that I was crying, and she said, what's wrong? And I said, Mom, everybody's white. <laughs> and so, I don't know. I think because of those days in Africa, those early memories, I think I, I always felt very close to my family because I had bonded so closely with my brothers. I think I had a, a very different view of church because we always met in the homes of people who were uh, in the church. And so, you know, it was just families getting together in someone's home. And it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a chapel. It wasn't a large congregation. And so I think my earliest memories of church were kind of this little group of families meeting and worshiping together. And I, I also think that my my whole view of of uh, the world was so different because of those early memories. I, I realized at a very young age that I had been given much and that uh, I had a responsibility to help others. Uh, you know, because when you're growing up in Africa and you see so much need, uh, I don't know many kids who were my age who gained an understanding and an appreciation of the fast offering for peace sake. I mean, what little kid before he's eight years old even knows what a fast offering is? And yet, to me, that was a very important part of my my world. Uh, I also think I gained a value of education because of those days, because I saw how important literacy was. And here I am now teaching at a university, teaching teachers how to teach reading and writing. I think because I realized how poor a life can be, how empty a life can be without education, without literacy. So I think, uh, I think Ethiopia definitely left its mark on me. I told my wife I want to go back there and serve a mission one day, and she's not too excited about that. But, but I told her she better get ready because I want to go back to Africa and, and serve. Awesome. You, uh, served a mission in Brazil, correct? No, actually in Chile. My older brother I'm sorry. served his mission in Brazil. But I served in Chile as a young man in 79. I served in the Viña del Mar mission. What was it like to serve there? Um, I loved my mission. I think it was a time of a lot of growing up for me. I think it is for all young people. But uh, I I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed as you see these young missionaries going out now, and they're so well prepared. I'm kind of embarrassed that I had never even read the Book of Mormon completely through until I was in the MTC. I mean, I'd read parts for seminary and parts for Sunday school. And, and I mean, I, I left on my mission with a testimony. I'm, I'm convinced of that. But, oh, the deepening of my testimony that happened while I was on my mission is something that will, you know, I'll be forever grateful for. I, I consider Chile very sacred ground because it's it's truly where I, I came to know uh, God and to feel his uh, his connection and power in, in my life. And so I'm grateful for my mission. I'll be forever grateful for my mission president and the influence he had on me. His name was Gerald Day, and he was truly there for me at times when I had doubts and when I had questions. And, and he was there to kind of help me and and uh, and I'll never forget that. So yes, I love Chile. I love the people. I love the food. Awesome. And and obviously later on in life, you had a wonderful opportunity to go back and to serve in this in that same kind of area as a mission president in the Santiago, Chile. Was it East Mission? Yeah. Not many people get that opportunity to go back to the same country, but but uh, miraculously I did, and it really was 
incredible. I loved being able to go back, you know, 25 years later or whatever it was, uh, and uh, be able to see the progress, but to be able to also see how some things were the same. Um, to be able to go back to some of my old sectors, even though they weren't in my mission, I got permission to go back to the areas where I had served, and I did some firesides there. I, I attended some sacrament services there and, and tried to look up some of my old friends. And, and I have good news and bad news. I mean, some of the people I saw again were faithful in the church. Their kids had grown and served missions and been married in the temple. And others had left the church. Some of them didn't even remember ever joining the church. Um, and it broke my heart to see that the church had meant so little to them and that they had settled for so little when they could have had so much more. And uh, and so, yes, I had the happy Ensign article stories, uh, grand reunions, and, and I also had the heartbreaking stories that, that rarely end up in the Ensign that uh, of, of just seeing people who've made other choices and to see how, how sad that made me. Gotcha. One of my listeners had a question for you, and, and the way they worded it was this. They said, um, if, if you had any over, first they want to know if you had any overlap with Elder Holland or Elder Oaks in their special assignment to Chile. Um, yeah, Elder Oaks, uh, President Hinckley sent Elder Oaks to the Philippines, so I didn't work closely with him, but at the same time, Elder Holland was sent to Chile, and they were both countries that had experienced a, a great deal of growth, and and because of that growth, I think the leadership had not been there to be able to sustain the growth, and they were having a lot of problems in both countries with inactivity and uh, and with uh, with uh, just just that explosive growth and the problems that come with that. So so those two apostles were sent to oversee those areas and see if they could kind of uh, uh, help get the the church on a little firmer foundation. So. Elder Holland's last year in Chile, he was there for two years with his wife, and his last year in Chile was our first year in Chile. Uh, we served from 03 to 06, and so our first year of our mission from 03 to 04 was Elder Holland's last year in Chile, and it was a remarkable opportunity to be able to see him in action and to be able to see him make very hard, hard choices. I mean... When he arrived in that country, there were about 125 stakes. And when he left, there were 75 stakes. I mean, 50 stakes evaporated. And you can't even imagine the trauma that that caused uh, among church members, who some of them felt like that was a sign that they were not doing well. Some of them, uh, you know, some of them struggled because they were offended. Uh but Elder Holland handled that so well and with so much compassion that most of the members of the church came through that. They consolidated stakes. They consolidated wards. And you'd think that if you had a ward of that with an attendance of 40 people and another ward with an attendance of 40 people, you'd get one ward that had an attendance of 80 people. But no, uh, when the wards were combined, then these people didn't want to go with those people, and these people were mad because their bishop got released. And and so you combine two wards of 40 people and have an attendance of 20 people. Gotcha. And, and Elder Holland said to me one day, he said, I know this pruning is difficult for the members, but he says it will bear fruit. And And I think I've seen that now, not directly, because we came home in 06, but... The reports I get from friends in Chile tell me that the real growth, not the numbers on paper, not the, 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 you know, the, the real indicators of growth, payment of tithing, um, attendance at the temple, number of temple recommends held, uh, attendance at sacrament meeting, number of, of young people, uh, serving missions. I mean, these indicators of real growth are are truly now in place. And I think much of that was because Elder Holland did such a good job of strengthening the leadership and making sure that each stake had strong leaders who were paying a full tithing and who were able to then inspire the members to new levels. 
And that's what we saw happen. I'm sure there's still problems, just as there are anywhere in the church. But I, I know that Chile was will never be the same because of Elder Holland's time there. And I'll never be the same because of my opportunity to serve with him. I don't speak of this often because, I don't know, it, these are personal memories. Um, and, you know, not the kind of thing that most people would care too much about. But but I I love those experiences. I, I love being able to give blessings with him and translate because his Spanish isn't as fluent as, as, uh, as it, as it can't, it could be. And, and so he would often choose to give a blessing in English. And then while I had my hands on the head of the person, I would translate his blessings into Spanish. And, uh, and it was just incredible to be able to stand next to an apostle, to be able to translate his blessings and to be able to see miracles. Some miracles as dramatic as the miracles that you read about in the New Testament. Healings that were as dramatic as when the apostles healed the lame men in the Bible. And it was a, it was quite a, a rare and rich opportunity to serve so closely with him and to watch the good that he was able to do as he loved people, as he reached out to people. The Chileans are very demonstrative. They love to touch and hug and kiss. And Elder Holland was the perfect apostle to be down there because he hugged everybody in that country. He kissed them all. He just reached out physically and spiritually, and he just embraced those saints with uh, with all the love and the enthusiasm of uh, of a of a of a relative and he uh he truly made a difference in that country made a difference for our family that that's great i love i love hearing those experiences uh it gives us a, a more intimate in look into a to an apostle in, in in their life you um you're an author you've also given a lot of uh talks for the church what got you into writing books and giving talks i know you shared a little bit about being younger in it kind of starting there, but what really got you into that book writing mode and, and giving talks for the church? Well, you know, Bill, it's it's kind of interesting as you look back in your life. I'm sure you've done the same thing. You look back and you think, "Gosh, how did how did I end up where I am?" And you you can see turning points. One turning point for me was an English teacher in high school who uh, said, "Hey, we're not going to play this stupid game." where I give you a topic, you write an essay, and then I bleed all over it and give you a grade. She says, that's a dumb game. She says, we don't play that game in real life. She says, in real life, you write for real reasons, not on a topic you're given. You write for things that matter to you. She says, you write with a real audience. You write to real people. You don't write to a teacher for a grade. You write to real people who are out there. And she says, in a real world, you get feedback, both from those people and from editors who are helping you get ready to share your writing. She says, I'm not going to give you a grade. I'm going to give you feedback on your writing. Well, that shift of perspective was uh, was monumental for me because it gave me, it empowered me at a very young age. I mean, I was a senior in high school, and yet I felt like, what my, what I cared about mattered because it was a real topic and there were real audiences out there wanting to hear what I had to say. Most high school seniors don't feel that way. They just want to jump the hoop and get done with the class. But this teacher was able to kind of shift my thinking so that I really did feel like I had something to say. I found out what was what mattered to me. And uh, and so I did. I wrote. Um, I I wrote for magazine magazines and contests, and uh, I actually ended up as a high school senior winning a a guidepost youth magazine writing contest. It was a guidepost magazine, the one that Norman Vincent Peale put together. Yeah. And uh, and I won their little youth writing contest, and and then I ended up writing a book uh, that was published by Bookcraft. Uh, when I was 18, I actually got a copy of the final book when I was in the MTC getting ready to go to Chile. And, uh, and that was exciting. You know, my 
companion couldn't understand why I was jumping up and down because somebody had sent me a church book. He says, it's just a stupid church book. I said, it's not a stupid church book. It's my stupid church book. And, uh, and he says, you wrote that? I said, yes, I wrote that. Here we're having this conversation in the lobby of the MTC. And he looks at the book and he sees my name and he says, I'm going to write a book. And pretty soon all of the elders in my district were writing books because by hang, if Wilcox could do it, they could do it. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I started writing at a very young age, but nobody really, you know, looking back, I have to smile because nobody really bought the book. I mean, I think my grandmother did. She bought boxes. <laughs> she bought boxes and boxes. In fact, she, she would send the book as a wedding gift to anybody whose wedding was announced in the newspaper, whether she knew. <laughs> That's great. I always ask somebody, if they ask me about my first book, it was called The Super Baruba Success Book for Underachievers, Overexpectors, and Other Ordinary People. The title was longer than the book. Um, but I always, uh, people say, Carl, uh, where can I get that book? And I say, find somebody who was married in the late 70s and go look on their shelves because they, <laughs> they probably have it as a gift from grandma. <laughs> uh, if that's great. And I guess the next question leads kind of into the majority of what I want to kind of talk about, which is your view of the atonement and grace. Obviously being an author, giving talks, I know for instance, uh, just a few weeks ago, me and my son were in the car, and I put on uh, one of your talks where you talk about the woman. Oh yeah, the uh, the uh, the girl that uh, asked you out to a dance, and uh, whose life uh, you probably made a huge difference in when that event occurred. I'm still in touch Just, with her, by the way. Seeing that as you've touched on lots of different subjects in the last few years, and obviously all your subjects do touch on grace, but in the last few years, grace has been your your real focus and how we access that through the atonement. What got you on the road of dissecting grace and seeing it, seeing it in a way that seems um, unique, at least from some standpoint, and might I add that it's a view that's very friendly for everybody who encounters it. What, what got you on that track? Bill, I'm glad you recognize that it is a different perspective because I think it was a different perspective that has, is needed. Um, I, uh, I think part of it may have started back when I was first speaking to the youth. I, I started speaking to the teenagers at EFY in 1985, and I've been doing that since. So I think for many years, I really did feel like I had my hand on the pulse of the young people of the church. And so I tried to deal with issues, and I, I, I've always been pretty courageous. In, in dealing with issues that, that were real issues for them. Um, whether it was, uh, you know, issues of chastity, uh, pornography. I, uh, I wrote the first article that was ever published in a church magazine on pornography and it was published in the new era. And, uh, prior to that, the church had just not touched that subject and, uh, you know, in an official publication. And so I think there were lots of times I, I wrote a, I wrote about masturbation, uh, and wrote about that long before it was something that people would even dare bring up in public. And I think it's because as I worked with the youth, I realized that these were issues that they were encountering and, and that we needed to hit some of those issues head on. And that may have been the start of my focus on grace because I realized that there were some of these issues and some of these habits that were, would become so strong that kids would struggle and they, they would find themselves in this, in this, uh, they would find themselves in this world where they felt torn because publicly they went to church, they went to EFY, they did the Mormon thing, and yet privately they were struggling with thoughts, with bad habits that were kind of dragging them down. And so they felt torn. They felt like, gosh, they had one foot in the church and they wanted to be there, but they had one foot in this secret world that they would very rarely talk to anyone about, and they couldn't get that foot out of that world. 
And I started thinking back then, you know, we talk about the atonement, but it's so it's usually talked about just as uh, life after death, resurrection, or it's talked about as our uh, it's talked about as forgiveness. You know, it's our chance to be forgiven um, or we talk about it as a source of comfort. Um, but I started realizing that when someone's trying to break a bad habit, um, the there was another side of the atonement that just wasn't being emphasized. And the resurrection didn't wasn't meaningful to them. And forgiveness wasn't meaningful as long as it was seen as a one-shot deal. I've got to repent. I've got to confess. I've got to forsake. And if I can't forsake, then I might as well not repent because then I'm just being hypocritical and all my other sins are going to come back. And so I just might as well not even try. I might as well not make the covenant if I just know I'm going to break it. And so forgiveness wasn't being a meaningful part of their lives. And the comfort wasn't being felt because they felt like they were bringing on the problem. See, it's fine to say I got cancer and I felt comfort through the atonement or through Christ or through the Spirit. Well, because I didn't bring on the cancer. So, yes, the atonement's there for people who die. The atonement's there for people who really repent and who are really forgiven. And the atonement's there for people who suffer because they've been abused at the hand of someone else or they, but gosh, what if I'm abusing myself? What if I'm the one causing my problems? Then the, even the comfort of the atonement seemed beyond reach. Mm-hmm. And I think this came to a head for me in the late nineties when I started, uh, when I was a bishop in a student ward. And the young people, many of them returned missionaries, would come to me and they'd confess and they'd feel better. And then they'd go out and do the same stupid things. And then they'd confess and then they'd feel better. And then they'd go out and do the same stupid things. And about the third or fourth time through this cycle, all of a sudden, they'd leave. See, teenagers won't because mom and dad are still dragging them to church. But young adults will. And they left. They just leave. And when I would talk to them, I'd say, why aren't you coming to church? What's the matter? Because I knew they had testimonies. I knew they loved the Lord, but they just always felt so unworthy. And they always felt like I can't do this. And that's when I started thinking, you know what? We have got to start teaching the doctrine. It's not new doctrine. Good grief. The Book of Mormon is full of grace. They talk about how Christ's name appears so often in the Book of Mormon. I mean, what, every 1.7 verses? Well, I mean, I think grace probably appears almost just as often. And and yet, I thought, we need to teach this doctrine in a way that it brings hope and in a way that will allow people to feel the transforming power of the atonement, not just the resurrection, not just forgiveness, not just comfort, but they will actually see the atonement as power, power to make changes in their lives, power to get from A to B and to get back to B once you've slipped back to A. Sure. And I think that as I saw this need so desperately among these young single adults, it sent me on a quest to find something that would fill this need. And I went to Emily Watts, who was a friend and an editor at Deseret Books. She'd worked with me on many projects. And I said, Emily, I need a book on grace. I need a book on hope. I need a book about how the atonement can help us, not just once we finish breaking a bad habit, but while we're in the process. And she said, I don't think there's one out there. And I said, well, Emily, find somebody to write that book. And she said, you write it. I said, oh, Emily, good grief. I'm I'm the one that writes about the Bowman. I'm the one that writes about dating. I'm the one that writes about, you know, youth things. This needs to be a serious book. I mean, this has to be this has to be something written by some general authority. I mean, this has to be a 
something that people will take seriously and not just blow off. And she said, Brad, you write it. And I said, Emily, people wouldn't even want it from me because they wouldn't see me as being an authority. They need to get some BYU professor, get somebody to do this. And she was insistent that this was a topic that was calling to me. And, you know, they always say writers don't choose their topics. Their topics choose them. And that was very much the case in this with this book. It chose me, and it wouldn't let me go. And so suddenly grace, suddenly this transforming aspect of the atonement and hope became the focus of my personal studies. It became the focus of my prayers. It became the focus of my celestial room conversations with anybody I could talk into sitting down for two minutes and and hashing this out with me. I mean, it became the topic of my thoughts on long drives, you know, when your mind just wanders. It would always wander back to this. And it wasn't that I thought, oh, well, here's the answer, and now I will write a book about the answer. Here's the doctrine that I understand so clearly, and now I will clearly help others understand it. No, I didn't have the answer, and I didn't understand the doctrine. In my book, I write often about how I used to view it this way, but now I view it this way. Because this was a time of great discovery for me as I started trying to make sense of this so that I and others could teach it in a way that could make sense to other people. I think as a church, we've been so frightened of grace, or at least bringing it up very often, although it's all through the hymn book. I mean, now, my gosh, I can't even sing a hymn on Sunday without hearing grace through the hymns. But anyway, that's a different topic. Um, I think I just felt like we shied away from grace because we didn't want to go over to this extreme that many born-again Christians are at, where it's like, woo, saved by grace, party, party on, dude. I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, God, thanks for making beer, you rock. Now, that was the bumper sticker. And I thought, see, there's somebody who thinks, I've been saved by grace. I can just do whatever I want to do, and God rocks, and he'll just make sure that 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 uh, that I'm taken care of. And we've been so afraid of that kind of definition of cheap grace, of quick and easy grace, that I think we've avoided the subject altogether. And instead, I wanted to look at grace, speak of grace, teach of grace, but I wanted it, I wanted it to be a, a, a real understanding of the enabling power that grace is in our lives. Not just a free pass to party on, but a power to be able to change internally and externally and become more like Jesus Christ. Um, a, one Christian writer presented this acronym. Grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. And I thought that's very much how many Christians see grace. I get God's riches at Christ's expense. So Christ paid for it, and I get all the riches. But I think as Latter-day Saints, we see grace differently. We see that, yes, through Christ's expense, we do have access to God's riches. But both God and Christ are not just giving us that on a silver platter. They're trying to teach us how to use God's riches. They're trying to prepare us so that not only can we receive God's riches, but we won't squander God's riches. We won't just throw it all away. And I think that as we start realizing that, then we start realizing that this, this transformation is, is possible. And so when the kid says, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. He has to remember, gosh, we don't we don't pray because we're worthy. We pray because we need help. And we certainly don't take the sacrament because we're worthy. We take the sacrament because we're willing to be perfected. We don't take it because we're perfect. We take it because we're in the process. And we certainly don't go to the temple because we we've, we've made it. We go there because that's where God and Christ are making us better. 
That's where they're making us stronger. So when kids say to me now, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to go on a mission. I'm not worthy to go to the temple. I'm not worthy to go to church. I say, you're right. You're not worthy of that. But that's not why we do those things. I'm not worthy to come unto Christ. You're right. But we don't come to Christ because we're worthy. Christ isn't this light at the end of the tunnel. We come to Christ because he is the means of becoming worthy. He is the means of becoming better. Some people say the mission of the church is just to come unto Christ. That's true, but it's not complete. Our real mission is to become like Christ. So coming to Christ is a means to the end. It's not the end. It's just the means to the end. The real end is to strive to become like him in this life and eternally. And as people grasp that transforming side of the atonement, then I think they truly begin to understand grace. That's how I began to understand it. And that's how it can become a power in our lives daily. And not just this little thing that happens, you know, once we die. Anyway, I'm sorry, that was a long, long explanation. but No, that's awesome. You touched on a lot of things. And, and obviously I've got a lot of questions for you, but I also... Hope you don't mind me having listened to your talk, His Grace is Sufficient, having listened to your talk with your, your daughter, Wendy, uh, Faith and Anchor to the Soul, oh, yeah. um, and, and also listening to uh, a couple of Brother Millet's talks. Gosh, I and love Stephen, that man. And Steve, yes, and Stephen Robinson's talk about the bicycle. Yeah, I love that man. And as we put all those together, I've, I, I've got a few insights that I know you've gotten already, but I want to cover them so our listeners kind of capture some of this too. Um, you talked about the hymns. The moment I got onto this kick on grace and began to see it the way you have kind of grasped at it, the way Brother Millet has grasped at it, the way Brother Robinson kind of opened the door to it. You're right. Every Sunday, if people will just listen to the hymns, grace is there so much more than we ever thought it was. Um, I know I joined the church at 17. I'm 34 now. And in my first 10 years in the church, I would have guessed I heard the word grace used 10 times. And yet, now that I listen every Sunday for it, and every time I hear it, I almost want to look up at the congregation and shake my head like, see, I told you, I told yeah. you. So you so you make a beautiful point. I hope the listeners will listen as they hear the hymns. Um, last week we sang How Firm a Foundation. And I think there's three or four verses in the actual hymn book, but then there's like three or four verses that are listed after. And you rarely sing those other verses. But as we were singing the first ones, I looked down at the other ones, and there it is. It says, His grace, all sufficient shall be, I mean, it's just like amazing to me. Right. No, you're right. The hymn books themselves, if we just listen and pay attention to what's in there, there's a lot of pure doctrine taught that we sometimes overlook or miss out on as we skim over it. Um, here's maybe a little bit of a tough question. How do you reconcile this view of grace that you have that I 100% agree with, with Second Nephi 25:23 and also the Bible Dictionary, which... I struggle a little bit when I hear the, you know, we access grace essentially by expending our own best efforts. And I feel like, I feel like every day I fall short of that. And I know that's kind of the, the, the philosophy you're trying to kind of not necessarily say this isn't true, but split up from a little bit and say, Hey guys, there's room to receive grace all the time. How do you reconcile your view with those two, uh, those two tools, scripture and then also the Bible dictionary that we use within the church? Well, I think Brother Robinson helped the whole church view things a little differently because I think prior to some of his work, the church was thinking, you know, I've got to be perfect. Be there for perfect. It's right in the scriptures and I gotta be there and I gotta be there by Friday. Right. All right. I think Brother Robinson helped us realize, as he said, look, there's two parts to this equation. Um there's our part and there's Jesus's part. And all we have to do is our part. Now the problem, the blessing of that is that members of the church finally felt free from having to do everything. But the problem with that is that advice to just do your best and let Jesus do the rest still leaves us in that quandary of how do I do my best? And can I ever really do my best? Can I ever really give my all? I mean, surely I could have stayed up five minutes later. Surely I could have gotten up a half hour earlier. Surely I could have read one more verse. Surely I could have paid one more dollar. And so to me, as you divide the two parts into his part and my part, 
then you're always in that same problem because whether I have to do all or whether I have to do my part, they're both impossible for me to accomplish alone. And that's the key. That's what I finally realized is that while Jesus has a part and while I have a part, it's not that one happens before the other. It's happening at the same time. My part and Jesus' part are happening simultaneously in this greatest of all companionships, which is not a ratio of his part to my part, but a relationship that is greater than the sum of the parts. If we look at our covenants, not as rule following, but as a relationship, then suddenly it opens the door. I don't have to get my part done so that Jesus can do his, and my part, my works, are certainly not supplementing his grace. Instead, instead of seeing salvation as, as having a minimum height requirement to get into heaven, we need to instead start seeing that it's about growth. It's not about height. It's about growth. And that growth happens as we work together with Christ. I, I, in the book, I talk about 2 Nephi 25-23, the phrase, after all we can do. And I look at it just a little differently than most people have in the past. Because I emphasize the word we. After all we can do. But not we as in you and me, but we as in Jesus and me, working together. After all we, Jesus and me, can do together, then, then, you know, then, that's being saved by grace. And I think as I, as I look at it that way, then it emphasizes this partnership idea. Do we have to expend efforts? Yes, we do. But who helps us expend those efforts? Who, who gives us the strength and life to even be able to do it? Christ, his divine help. And so instead of seeing one and then the other, I think I see them both working simultaneously. Instead of seeing his part and my part, I see his heart and my heart loving each other and working together. Um, I, Elder Hafen said it beautifully in one of his books when he said, we are not limited in time to receiving Christ's grace after all we can do. We receive his grace before, during, and after the time when we expend our own efforts. And I love that because it broadens, it broadens the, the companionship I have with Christ. It broadens the relationship I have with God. And suddenly it's not all on my shoulders. Suddenly it's not something I have to do so that grace can come. Suddenly it's a joint, a joint effort. Um, C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, we are trying so hard to separate into watertight compartments what exactly man does and what God does when God and man are working together. And maybe this is, uh, and I'm, I apologize if I steal any of your ideas. In the process of, of listening to all the things you've put out in, uh, in reading all of Robert Millett's work on grace and reading uh, Brother Robinson's book and listening to us talk over and over again, and you mentioned this a little bit ago about being willing, and one of the things that caught my eye, and I just want to bring this up so listeners catch this, is I thought about what our promises are as we join the church. In Mosiah 18, talking about being willing to mourn with those that mourn and being willing to comfort those that stand in need of comfort and to stand as a witness of Christ at all times and in place and things. It was interesting. Um, I went back and looked at the sacrament prayer. And the prayer on the bread is the only one of the two that asks us to keep the commandments. And it also uses the word willing in that in that promise. And I often think about, and this hits right on the way you think of this, if we were to make a promise to God that I'm going to keep the commandments, and if I keep the commandments, then you promise that your spirit will be with me, I'm going to break my end of the promise sometime probably within the first hour of making it. But if my promise is to be willing so that I'm promising to do it, but he holds me based on at least on some extent of me where my heart is, and and then also repenting when I do make mistakes, all of a sudden there's a promise there that I can keep. And and these are connections that you've helped me make, and so I just I'm so appreciative of you, Brother Wilcox. Um, the Continuous Atonement, your first book in this this two part uh, project, 
And then you have your new book, which is The Continuous Conversion. Can you briefly help those uh, who have not read the second book to maybe understand the transition uh, you're making from going from the first to the second? Yeah, um, I, I think the transition is about the very thing you're talking about right now, that willingness. Um, in the second book, I tell about a friend who went to his bishop and said, I'm sick of it. I'm not coming anymore to church because I'm sick of being a hypocrite. Uh, I'm sick of coming and listening to all this spiritual stuff and then and then just going back out in the world and, and sinning. He says, I, I feel like a hypocrite. And the bishop said to him, um, have you been honest with me? Do I know everything that there is to know about your situation? And he says, yes, all the cards are on the table. Then the bishop said, well, are you trying? Are you trying? I mean, are you really trying to improve, or is this just a joke? I mean, do you just come to church and repent and confess, and then you go out and post on your Facebook page, ha ha, I totally, I totally, totally pulled the wool over the bishop's eyes. He thinks, uh, yeah, I got a temple recommend, and I'm still drinking, and I'm still smoking. I mean, and there are people that do that. Mm-hmm. So I, he said, is this just a joke to you, or are you sincerely trying? He says, no, I'm sincerely trying. Then the bishop said, what makes you think that you're a hypocrite? He says, if you're honest and you're trying, then you're not being hypocritical. You are being a disciple. That's what disciples do. Disciples aren't perfect. Hypocrites aren't perfect. So what's the difference between a disciple and a hypocrite? Well, disciples are honest with God, honest with themselves, honest with priesthood leaders, honest with others about their weaknesses. and disciples are trying. So what does that make a hypocrite? Somebody who's hiding, somebody who's lying, somebody who's who's not confessing, and somebody who isn't even trying. And so he says, you're not a hypocrite. You are a disciple. And I think what I'm trying to do in that second book is help people along that discipleship journey, that conversion that isn't a one-shot deal, I got baptized on such and such a date. But it's actually a lifetime process of trying to become more like the Savior. The books aren't really a one and two as much as the, their companion volumes. Corey Maxwell, the editor at, at, at uh, Deseret Books, said, I, he said, I see these as companion volumes because he says it's not, you know, like a sequel as much as it's just a companion. And I love the way on the covers they put the bread on one cover and the water on the other cover. How, at how the two go together. I just love that. But in this second one, I do deal with issues of, of uh, change. I do deal with grace. In fact, the first chapter is kind of a recap of the first book. And I, I hesitated putting that in. But Corey said, we've got to have that for people who haven't read the first book. So some people read the first chapter and they say, well, this is just all the stuff he said in his other book. So I hope they'll keep reading because other chapters deal with applying the atonement and how that connects with the first principles of the gospel. It deals with temple worship and the temple endowment. I think that's a a chapter I'm very excited about and proud about because I think it really will open some eyes for people who struggle trying to understand how the temple endowment connects with Christ. And I I deal with even issues like juggling our busy lives. I mean, Bill, here you are interviewing me. You're taking time away from your life. You're taking time away from your family. And you're you're taking time away from your calling. And how do we juggle all that? How do we we juggle all that's expected of us as members of the church without feeling like we're forever dropping balls and feeling discouraged about it? And those are issues I deal with in this new book. Awesome. Awesome. I mentioned earlier your uh, your talk, I think it was at a women's conference with your daughter, Wendy, and uh, Faith and Anchor to My Soul. And in that talk, she made a huge connection for me, which I obviously you also talk about in your book, The Continuous Atonement. And I wanted to give you a moment to talk about this if you, if you had any other insight. But she talked about Doctrine and Covenants section 19 and the suffering for our sins. And often we have this thought, we see that that section in the Doctrine and Covenants, we read that, and there's this thought of we can just suffer for our sins and then maybe that's how we can pay the price and, and return back to the Father. 
And the way she talked about it, it, it forced me to start looking up some scriptures. And once you really grasp the concept, there's these three ways that we can each get back to the Father. One, we can keep the law perfectly. And you and I are probably aren't doing too good at that. Yeah. <laughs> we fall short. <laughs> that one's out. Right. So the second is to, to keep the gospel, which is to, to essentially uh, receive the ordinances, to do our, you know, to do our best. And obviously, as we fall short of that, to repent. Act, and then the yeah, third. Accept Jesus' gift. Right. And then the third one is to suffer for our sins. But but as Wendy pointed out, that will complete the justification part of the requirement. But then when we look at section 88, verse 19 of the Doctrine of Covenants, which says those who are not sanctified cannot inherit the celestial kingdom, we then grasp that while the first way is out and the third way is out, the only way we're really ever going to get back to the Father is living the gospel. And I just wanted to ask you, because you, you gave me that little gem, and uh, it's something that I've really treasured. I just want to know if you had any other insight on on sanctification and justification and how those two work together. Yeah, Elder Hafen has written quite a bit on this, and it's been helpful to me because I think you're right. If we see salvation as just paying our debt to justice, then people think, all right, I accept Jesus' payment of that debt, or I'll suffer from my own sins, thank you very much. But they don't realize that while Doctrine and Covenant seems to indicate that we could suffer for our own sins. That suffering won't change us. It won't change us any more than as some guy going through a drug rehab program who doesn't want to be there. I mean, my little nephew's been through a million of them. The minute he gets out, he's right back to his old ways. Doesn't matter who had to pay for the program. It doesn't matter what he said to get in or out. It, it, It doesn't change him. Suffering in and of itself, is not a change agent. Christ is a change agent. So often, people, because of their suffering, will turn to God. They'll turn to Christ. And that's the change agent. But suffering in and of itself can make one person bitter and angry. At the same time, it sanctifies another person. And so it all has to do with whether we're going to accept that gift and then let that help us become more like Christ, which is the sanctification. So maybe somebody can suffer for his own sins, but it's certainly not going to let him waltz into the celestial kingdom because he is going to be no more like Christ and no more like God than when he did sin. Suffering for his own sins is not going to make him godly. That payment to justice is not going to make him comfortable when he has to be in the presence of God. So uh, many Christians see Christ's suffering as a huge favor he did for us. Oh, thank you, Jesus. He did this huge favor for us. He let us turn in his his homework with our name on it. He did all the suffering, and he put our name on it so we don't have to suffer. Thank you, Jesus. Well, yes, thank you, Jesus, for that. But that's not the extent of it. That's not the Latter-day Saint view, because we not only see the atonement as a favor, we also see it as an investment, a chance he's giving us to be lifted to higher planes, lifted to higher ground. And so Jesus isn't so concerned with, you know, letting us turn in his homework as much as he is with us learning something. He'll help us with the homework, because He wants us to learn something. Jesus' atonement is not about giving a man a fish. It's about teaching us to fish now and eternally. And he will tutor us through that entire process. The atonement isn't just finished in the Garden of Gethsemane, although people talk about how Christ's work is finished and how we can't add to his work. There is a finishing that happens because of Christ's finished work. And grace is not, grace is the finisher's touch. It's it's the chance to be able to be molded by him. So many people think that being a Mormon is fitting a mold. I'm grateful for these little I'm a Mormon campaign things. Because you see the most bizarre people on there. Right. Hey, I'm a Mormon, and they've got these guys out there that look like they are. You know, uh, people would not look at them as stereotypical Mormons. But I love that campaign because it's letting the world know that 
being a Mormon isn't fitting a mold. Being a Mormon is being molded by Christ to become like him. And, and that is, uh, is a whole different view. Awesome. And, and I think once we start to make that connection between the justification, which is one part of what the Savior helps us do, and then the sanctification, the changing, as you pointed out in one of your talks, I don't remember where, we begin to understand, too, the, um, the temple question of do we have a testimony of Christ as Savior and Redeemer, that being two-part. We begin to grasp scriptures. I think it's Helaman 335. It talks about being purified and sanctified. Pure hands, um, clean hands, and right. pure heart. Yeah. Right. And so once we start grasping that, I think people can really start to eat up the gospel, and it, it becomes something that just um, begins to really grow within them. Well, like, like um, we said earlier, Bill, it's not, a, it's not so much rule following. It, it, see, people look at the Mormon church, and they see it as this long list of rules and commandments. And instead, you know, I think what we've got to do, uh, many Christians, because they don't like that, they, they, they want to get rid of the rules and rid of the commandments. And so then they think grace means no commandments, no rules. And they, they go to that other extreme. And I think the answer, the solution to those two extremes of the scale is to realize why. Why does God give us commandments in the first place? Why does he give us the rules? He's not trying to make us miserable. He's trying to make us happy, and he's trying to shape us and help us become more like him. And so as we look at that, then we start seeing the excitement of keeping those rules. Then it's not, oh, I have to keep this rule. Gosh, I wish I didn't. It, it Suddenly it becomes this challenge to to educate our desires uh, to a point that we that we really start feeling that soul-changing, life-changing, heart-changing gospel instead of the list of rules. See, awesome. you can fight rules. You can fight against rules. In fact, just between you and me and whoever's listening to this, I, I fight a lot of rules. Um, I was... Probably not the best mission president in the world because, because I, I struggled with some of the same rules that the missionaries struggled with. Right. And so if you look at the gospel as just rules, then it's frustrating. But if you look at the gospel as a relationship and the rules as a means to building that relationship, it just takes on a whole new perspective. And that's kind of what I've tried to focus on in this second book. We talked a little bit earlier about other individuals who who share kind of a common uh, theme within this this conversation of grace. And I know after listening to Robert Millett's talk, After All We Can Do, The Meaning of Grace in Our Lives, which I think he gave at a women's conference many years ago, there are a lot of similar things. I'm assuming you have a relationship with Brother Millett, that you know who he is, that you've talked to him before. Can I ask what... Uh, what kind of connection maybe the two of you have? Um, oh, just the connection between uh, hero and admirer. <laughs> I mean, he's just a wonderful hero to me. I-, I think partly because of the way he teaches, the way he writes, but partly because of the way he lives his life. He's such a quiet, consistent disciple. Uh, he, he's, he, uh, He's a remarkable example, publicly and privately. And I knew him because of his teachings and writings. Um, we've taught together on many occasions. But, uh, I mean, he was kind enough to call me a friend long before I felt like I deserved that title. But I, I think he truly became part of my heart when I was writing this book on the atonement. And I felt like maybe some of the things I was saying might be a little too far out there. I was afraid it might draw criticism. And so I went to Robert Millett, who was a member of the Deseret Book Board at the time, and I said, Bob, I know you're busy. I know you've got stuff up to your ears, but you've got to read through this and tell me if I'm being too bold, if I'm being too to if I'm off base. And, right. and you know, it was his 
reading through that manuscript, when it's a very rough, rough draft of that manuscript, it was his validation that said, no, Brad, you're on to something, and you're teaching it in a way that makes it accessible. He says sometimes, you know, he says sometimes as professors, we we can explain it, but only to other professors. And he says, you're, you're able, he says, with your elementary education background, because that's what I teach at BYU is elementary ed. I'm not in the religion department. And he says, because of your elementary ed background, he says, you are being able to kind of bring some of these concepts down to a level that makes them understandable. So he's the one who said, you've got to keep this going. You've got to do this. You've got to get this book published. And that meant a great deal to me. And so I don't know. I mean, I love, I love Bob Millet. And it's not that we get together and go bowling every Thursday. Good grief. He's busy. I'm busy. We don't see each other that often, but he is truly a hero in my life. Um, and, and, uh, and, and a master teacher. I, I recommend, um, all of his, his writings. And you know, the funny thing, Bill, and again, the, I actually take issue with some of his writings. In my book, sometimes it says, some people say this, but I don't agree. Well, the some people I'm talking about is usually Robert Millet. And and he just laughs at that because he says, Brad, you're referring to writings I did very early in my career. And he says, I've grown. I've matured. He says, I've learned. And so, uh, you know, it's funny because I never come out and say, well, Bob Millet said this and I disagree. Uh, but, but it's funny because as he was reading the manuscript, sometimes he'd put little smiley faces in the margin because he'd realized that I was referring to some, some of the very things that he had taught previously. Right. But he says we all grow, we all change, and he says as my understanding of grace has deepened, he says, uh, you know, I, I do. He says I do look at it a little differently than I once did. And I think that's the beauty of the gospel is that we all can kind of see these layers of understanding and we can peel away these layers and and we can uh, we can learn and grow together but i love that man come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming My Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue. From danger interposed his precious precious blood. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace Come my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransom soul away Send thine angels now to carry Me to realms of endless day
Oh, to grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be Let thy goodness, like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for thy courts above Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for thy courts above